Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Well, last week, I guess, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, down in Miami, there was a crypto investor conference and uh, very well attended, well covered in uh, the business media. And what's also notable is that people actually went. It wasn't virtual. It was a real conference where real people got together talking all things crypto. I look at Bitcoin today. It's pretty much unchanged here, just over $36,000 per coin. Uh, but there's certainly been a lot of volatility in that crypto market. Let's get the latest with Jeff Dorman. He's the CIO of ARCA. ARCA is a digital asset firm. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us here. Love to get your thoughts. Just Let's start with Bitcoin because that's the, the cryptocurrency or the crypto asset class or asset that people are most familiar with. Talk to us about the volatility of Bitcoin. What does that tell you? Uh, sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, I mean, look, the volatility is happening because this is a new asset class and new asset classes don't have the same structure. They don't have the same players. Uh, and it's largely driven by momentum and algorithmic quantitative traders to date. Um, you know, I think that will change over time as this becomes a larger, more uh, adopted asset. In fact, you're already seeing it starting to decline a little bit because this is touching so many people. But, you know, volatility happens when you have a lot more retail traders and uh, momentum traders than you do fundamental investors. And that's natural for an asset that doesn't really have any fundamental underpinning. Are we looking at a, a little bit of stability here around $36,000? Right now, sure. Uh, things can change <laughs> pretty quick. Uh, you know, I think, I think look, the, the, there's a couple of things that drive Bitcoin's value, right? And it's obviously not traditional fundamental uh, valuation technique. That's true of other assets and digital assets, but not Bitcoin. But what we know about Bitcoin specifically is there's a couple of factors that have driven it. You have low rates and a declining dollar. That's still very much in play. Nothing's changing there. Therefore, this should still be a, a pretty strong macro asset. You have institutional money entering the space. Nothing's changed there. We have you know, tons of investors coming into our funds. Other funds are saying the same thing. Money is pouring in uh, everywhere you look into this asset class because of what I said before, low rates and a low dollar. Right? Where else are you going to go to invest your money? Um, you know, really, the only thing that's changed is recent narratives. You know, if you are going to watch Bitcoin go up from 10000 to 60000 every time Elon Musk tweets positively, well, then by definition, when him and other corporations pull out, that's going to have a negative effect as well. So I think the volatility is based on, you know, a lack of uh, uh, conviction around uh, uh, the path that it takes to get higher. But ultimately, Bitcoin's a binary bet. It's either going to be worth a lot more if this is adopted as a true store of value and currency, or it's going to be worth a lot less if it doesn't. And everything in between uh, is, is a lot of fun to trade, but not necessarily indicative of, of the end result. Jeff, you say money's pouring into this asset class. Where's the money coming from? Is it retail? Are you seeing institutional buy-in? Where are you seeing it? Well, institutional buy-in, you know, in the traditional investing world, it typically means your asset allocators, right? Your pensions, your endowments, your sovereign wealth. It's not really coming from there yet. I, I think there's a lot of uh, uh, conflating the word institutional here in the market because all of a sudden hedge funds got involved and all of a sudden corporate treasurers got involved. The reality is most of the buying power of Bitcoin is still family offices, high net worth, you know, uh, not necessarily in the hedge fund itself, but generally the owners of a hedge fund in their own uh, personal accounts. 
there is definitely real money coming in from the institutional world, but it's not the traditional institutional asset allocators yet. What What's going to change that? Um, quite frankly, I'm not sure it ever does. Uh, you know, the institutional investors that we speak to, the pensions, endowments, sovereign wealth, et cetera, they're more interested in the rest of the asset class. Uh, you know, a lot of times I talk about digital assets the same way I talk about ETFs. Right. You would never say, hey, I'm an ETF investor. You say, well, what kind of ETF investor are you? Are you invested in healthcare stocks or you know, bond ETFs or are you invested in gold ETFs? Right? The ETF itself is just a structure, and what's in the structure is what's relevant from an investing standpoint. And the same thing is happening with digital assets. We have different types of digital assets. Some are asset-backed. Some have revenue pass-throughs. Some are more like uh, technology protocols and platforms, and others are cryptocurrency and money like Bitcoin. I think the institutional investors largely gravitate towards the ones that have real fundamental analysis attached to them, which is the asset-backed tokens and the companies with real revenue and cash flows. I get get asset-backed tokens, I get. Um, But Bitcoin is the only one where the token really has become a store of value, um, you know, that's not asset-backed. The other interesting uh, crypto plays like Ethereum have a a great platform, but I don't see any reason to buy the token. I think that was true historically, and I would have agreed with you two years ago. But what's happening now is uh, Ethereum is an ecosystem that other applications are building upon, right? In some ways, Ethereum is the app store, and all the other tokens are the apps that are built in the app store. Uh, You know, how does the app store make money? It makes money on the transactions that are happening inside of that app store. And that's basically what Ethereum is doing. To date, uh, the ETH token has accrued none of that economic value. But with a new uh, proposal that is going into place called EIP-1559, and it's shift from proof of work to proof of stake, there actually are going to be real cash flows that eventually accrue back to the ETH token holders. So it is changing a little bit. And that's what's so interesting about this asset class is uh, these tokens can be representative of one thing on day one and ultimately morph and change uh, throughout the evolution of, uh, of the investment. Um, the, the, you know, Ethereum itself, is still kind of difficult for traditional investors to get their hands around because it is this like broader GDP ecosystem thing. But the applications that are built on top of Ethereum are generally real companies with real revenues and real cash flows. And the tokens can be modeled using a DCF analysis or a dividend yield model. And that's what we focus on at ARCA. And that's what a lot of institutional investors are focused on as well. And that includes DeFi, uh, some gaming assets, uh, and a lot of other ones that are, that are coming down the pike in the future as well. All right, Jeff, just real quickly, 30 seconds. What's the next milepost that you're looking for as this market, this asset class continues to develop and evolve? Uh, for me, the milestone is, is education, um, doing more things like what you're doing and others where investors can understand that cryptocurrency is not the right term. Cryptocurrency is a very small subset of the market, but these other assets are really more like quasi-equity. And ultimately, I think digital assets will end up in every company's capital structure from you know, Netflix to Starbucks to Delta over time. And once you start to see the companies adopt it and you see investors understand what these assets really are, uh, you know, being great coordination mechanisms and growth mechanisms for companies, uh, I think the narrative will change. And we'll be talking less about Bitcoin and more about the cash flow producing entities that use a digital asset to represent that growth. All right. Very interesting stuff. Jeff, yeah. thanks very much for talking to us. Uh, always a pleasure. Jeff Dorman is the chief investment officer at ARCA talking to us about, I was about to say cryptocurrency. Digital assets, I think, wrong. is what digital I'm my ass- takeaway. Digital assets there. Looking at one of them, Bitcoin, just slipping under 36000 barely $35,964.93. Ether trading for 2778 This is Bloomberg. 
Now I want to bring in Scott Kimball, Portfolio Manager of the Strategic Income Fund and co-head of U.S. Fixed Income at BMO Global Asset Management. Scott, let's talk first about what we saw happen on Friday. It was pretty interesting with the jobs number. It was a miss, but still, I guess, a pretty good number. More than 500,000 people got jobs in this economy as we as we reopen. And we saw Treasuries uh, yields just dropped. Uh, I think it was five, six basis points down to 157. We're trading there right now, 157.21. Um, does that make sense to you? Uh, yeah, good morning. Uh, I think it, it does for a few reasons. Uh, I think that's what the jobs report signals first and foremost is that we are transitioning out of the you know the post reopening boom and into a uh, an economic environment where more and more of the U.S.'s economy's own inertia is going to have to take over, and that growth potential and growth output is going to have to be really driven by the underlying ec- uh, economic fundamentals uh, post that that big boom in the recovery, which I think is what you saw in the outcome of the the jobs report. Uh, you know the estimates versus the the actual print. That's not atypical. That's pretty common as you get you know through these these handoff cycles where you may not be directly in line with the number, but the directional trend uh, still remains pretty favorable. Treasuries, however, uh, probably took that as a little bit of a, uh, a you know if you've seen the U.S. yield curve be very steep, probably taking off a, a little bit of the steepness to reflect the fact that you know the things like inflation still have some upside risk, but the ability to really punch through into a an explosively higher inflationary environment is probably uh, being a little bit tempered by this, uh, you know, this this transition in the economy, if you will. That's kind of where I wanted to go, Scott, uh, in terms of the discussion about inflationary concerns into this market. You know, obviously two camps, one being the Federal Reserve camp, where, you know, the signs of, of inflation that we are seeing are transitory and the other is saying, hey, it might be more systemic than that. Where do you fall? So... Uh, Perfectly down the middle, because I think the Fed has a lot of credibility um, on the inflationary front. They, they've been telling us for over a decade that inflationary pressures are transitory, and they've been correct. And that's a long enough streak to be more than random. So I think that the, the, the Fed has the pulse of the inflationary yep. pressures uh, pretty well contained, uh, pretty, well, pretty well contained and pretty well figured out, except um, this last couple of rounds, there's been a little bit of, uh, a little bit of whack-a-mole in that everywhere – inflation has moved higher, it's sort of popped up in different parts of, of the CPI measure. So, for instance, the most recent uh, read on, you know, used autos, you know, that's something that historically when you look at used autos contribution to inflation, it, it tends to it tends to spike and, and dissipate pretty regularly. Uh, and you can usually explain why. In our case, you know, with a pandemic, we had, you know, auto plants were restricted or output was was curtailed. Um, and people were uh, being a little more conscious of where they of where they spent money. So replacement vehicles were driven more towards the used market. So naturally, we've seen some we saw some some booming uh, prices there in in uh, in used autos. But how sustainable is that going to be? That gets back to the the Fed's point. Uh, I think uh, our position has been that there is a directional case to be made for inflation to continue to creep higher, um, but it's bumping into some things that. I think will constrain it. So, for instance, oil prices most prominently. Uh, you know, we're coming up on seventy dollars a barrel. Uh, as we model things out, if we break through that and you start getting seventy-five, eighty dollars a barrel, you know, that does certainly put upward price pressures. But the ability to pass through those pressures starts to roll over, and you start to see that consumption will adjust downward. 
So there's indica- indicators like that that point to mechanisms where, yes, inflation can press higher, but then the economic output starts to suffer, which then can sort of constrains it from running away. Is it, con- is it consensus, though, that we start to taper at the end of this year, um, beginning of next year, then start to raise rates and 22 beginning of 2023? That's definitely the way the futures market has has uh, has. That's definitely out the I guess the path of the output the futures market has been favoring. Um, I think it's probably going to be difficult to really address the rate front. Um, you know, the Fed has you know between both tapering and uh, transitioning interest rate policy. In both cases, between the taper tantrum and and whatever occurred uh, when Powell tried to raise rates, uh, whatever we want to label that. Um, in both cases, the market response and the economic response was pretty clear that this version of the U.S. economy uh, is going to be a little more difficult than past cycles to have those meaningful breakthroughs uh, in 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 uh, in monetary policy. Or, or so it's going to be our expe- our expectation that uh, tapering is probably going to take place. I think that there's definitely efficacy for that in the economy. You're through the crisis period. As far as transitioning monetary policy to, let's say, a, a rising rate environment, um, wouldn't be surprised if that tail uh, continues to push its way down the road a little bit. Hey, Scott, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate getting your thoughts and perspective on the fixed income markets. Scott Kimball, Portfolio Manager of the Strategic Income Fund and co-head of U.S. Fixed Income for BIBO. BMO, a global asset management, getting his thoughts on fixed income market. Again, the 10-year Treasury remains down at 1.57%. All right, the Bloomberg Big Take story today is just fascinating. People are finding those who took part in the January 6th Capitol siege via social media and are helping federal officers arrest them. We're seeing it all throughout our social media feeds. David Yaffe Bellany did some work on this. He's the legal reporter for Bloomberg News. David, it seems like, you know, everybody in their social media feeds are seeing, you know, stories and and of 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 people that have been identified as taking part in the uh, Capitol siege. How widespread is that? Um, So, you know, right after the siege on January 6th, there was kind of a wave of activism from people who, just regular people watching the footage at home who were outraged at what had happened and wanted to do something about it, um, find some way to bring the perpetrators to justice. And so you had this kind of initial rush to identify people who were there that was initially focused on some of the kind of most most prominent people in the, in the photos and videos, um, you know, the man with his feet up on Nancy Pelosi's desk or, or the guy in the kind of animal headdress uh, who's walking through the Capitol. And, and, and that, you know, there were, you know, thousands of people all over social media sort of participating in that in that effort. And it's sort of evolved in an interesting way. Since then, we're now people are kind of trying to track down um, sort of less well-known participants in the riot in sort of the background of some of those photos and, and, and try to really get a comprehensive sense of who was involved. So you got uh, one guy, the, the lead guy, I love his picture. He looks kind of like Indiana Jones, um, <laughs> who's helping to find out who these people are. Um, I guess he's a guy who doesn't have a job, so he has the ability to spend the time to spend 40 hours a week on the Internet looking for, for these dudes. 
yeah, the way the way he put it to me is that he was living at home with his girlfriend, and she, and she would log on to her computer to do her actual job, and he would log on to his computer and do his kind of sedition hunting gig for for a few months. You know, uh, like so many people, he found it you know difficult to get consistent work during the pandemic. He's an actor in, in Canada, and those sorts of opportunities were drying up. Um, and so, yeah, it was really a combination of kind of curiosity and pandemic-induced boredom that sort of motivated him to, to get involved with this. And he just started spending, you know, hours and hours a day pouring through photos and videos, trying to kind of catalog images where you could see the same person multiple times to sort of put together like a comprehensive account of all the evidence of a particular individual's involvement. And eventually that allowed him to I- identify somebody um, who, was, who was charged by the FBI. Um, and, and his work was, was cited in the arrest affidavit um, sort of underlying that, that charge. David, don't we have a bunch of like NSA Blackbriar nerds who can do this stuff <laughs> in their sleep? Um, you know, in, in, in theory, we do. And, and look, the federal investigation has you know, made a lot of progress over the past few months. Nearly 500 people have been arrested. And that's not all because of the work of these sort of online sedition hunters. But there was there was just so much footage um, and so many people involved and such pressure to move quickly on this um, that I think the government was appreciative of the, of the public's help. Um, you know, when I when I talked to the FBI about this, you know, they, they said, you know, in dozens and dozens of cases, these sorts of tips have proved helpful. Um, and they're asking for more help as they, you know, continue to try to round up, you know, hundreds more people who were involved in the riot and haven't been brought to justice so far. So I know, David, the Senate Republicans recently blocked a bill in Congress to create an independent September 11 style commission to investigate the riot. So does that mean we're, you know, we're basically just relying on uh, the FBI and some of these amateurs to kind of bring people to justice, as it were? Um, to to an extent, yes. I mean, you know, the the, the investigation is presumably going to succeed in, in putting some of these people in in prison. But there are broader questions about what happened on January sixth. You know, the extent to which far right groups were coordinating with each other. Um, you know, public figures who who may have been present or may have uh, helped people behind the scenes and what their role was. There's there's, there's these sort of broader historical questions that the investigation might not ultimately answer, and which you know people had hoped some sort of bipartisan report would would explore. And so one of the things that's motivating these sedition hunters now is to try to kind of chip away at some of those uh, those questions using the sort of open source resources that they have to hand um, and really kind of fill in where where sort of Congress is sort of not taking action. It's ironic that both groups seem to use Discord, right? I mean, you've got the, (laughs) the QAnon people on there as well as the sedition hunters. Is there a risk that, you know, if the FBI keeps on um, begging, if you see something, say something, you know, watch your neighbor and give us a call. Do we risk some kind of East German Stasi surveillance state culture? I mean, I think that's definitely a concern. I mean, some of these amateur sedition hunters are using facial recognition technology to try to to try to target people who are at the Capitol on, on January 6th. And the fact that that sort of technology is, is freely available to members of the public and that, you know, anybody with you know some sort of software engineering background can kind of put together relatively quickly a kind of facial recognition database. Is, is definitely is definitely troubling and raises all sorts of civil liberties concerns. Or um, they could make a mistake, David. They could get someone innocent in, in hot water. 
Yeah, absolutely. And we've, I mean, we've seen that with in the aftermath of January 6th, that people have been identified, you know, and named publicly who weren't actually actually there. Now, to their credit, a lot of the, the groups that are coordinating some of the sedition hunting activity are going to great lengths to prevent that sort of thing from happening. They're urging their followers never to publicly identify somebody by name and always to submit that information to the FBI, which can then go and verify those tips, you know, um, through its sort of more sophisticated means. And, you know, you definitely see in some FBI arrest affidavits, oh, you know, we got 10 tips about this case, and eight of them were wrong, but, you know, here are the two that turned out to be correct, and that's how we arrested this person. Um, so, you know, I, I think I think that these groups are conscious of that risk and are trying to avoid making mistakes, but, of course, there's no way that you can control just thousands of people on the Internet. Really interesting story. I love the big take. Um, <laughs> they do some cool it, work. It's such a cool uh, new thing that we have on the Bloomberg. And David, your um, your story is awesome. I love also the layout. It's really well done. So thanks very much for joining us on this one. David Yaffe Bellany talking to us about the amateur internet sleuths who are trying to take down um, the capital rioters who you know did things like serious bodily damage to a lot of the police officers just trying to defend our nation's capital this is bloomberg all right apparently uh i guess uh jeff bezos july 20th is set to launch into space on one of those Blue Origin flights. Let's get the latest on this deal. Like, I think he's not going to be alone either. Ed Ludlow, he's an auto reporter for Bloomberg News, joins us from the Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. He's a rocket Ed, reporter. I, he's a rocket reporter now is what he is. Uh, Ed, so Jeff Bezos going into space, this seems like a big deal for me, but I guess if you're one of, if not the richest person in the world, you can do those things. Yeah, it's a pretty small group of people that have the ability to do that right so this is blue origins debut passenger they, they, they call them astronauts you know private astronauts but they're passengers because okay. it's a fully autonomous craft and he is going to go up with his brother mark bezos and one lucky i suppose uh auction winner so right now the highest bidder for the third seat has put 2.8 million dollars down <laughs> that's it Th- we well, say oh, that's it. I mean, you know, you can talk to him. Uh, Ed, there, somebody paid sixty-nine million dollars for an NFT of a Beeple <laughs> picture. Just yeah, I know, context. but the you know the the risks associated with <laughs> being launched into orbit and buying NFTs, I don't think they're on par, right? But uh, you know, they're going to continue this auction until mid-June when they'll close it. Highest bidder gets to go up with the Bezos Bros. Um, it's an eleven-minute journey. You know, you go to the Kármán line, which is about a uh, hundred kilometers above above Earth. You know, it's kind of the internationally recognized boundary of space from Earth, and then you come straight back down in the capsule. So when the capsule separates from the booster, the new Shepard booster, it, it falls by itself with parachute. You know, very leisurely ride. Is the booster? I mean, are we talking about top tech here? Is it going to land again on some autonomous ship in the ocean, or is it ghetto? Just no, it's autonomous. I think what's interesting about Blue Origin is that they, you know, they clearly want to get some kind of milestone win. If you if you go all the way back to to 2012, they were the first to actually land a, a booster autonomously ahead of SpaceX by about a month, one calendar month. But the thing is, that. 
Blue Origin has only done 15 consecutive test flights of its technology. By this point, over a 10-year period, SpaceX has done a, more than 125 successful flights. So, you know, Bezos is, I, I don't know whether it's the right expression, putting his money where his mouth is, but he, you know, this is a company that he has put $1 billion into on an annual basis. Um, he has spoken very competitively about it, about how his, it's been his childhood dream to go to space. And, you know, he's going to go up himself. He's going to put his yeah. mouth where his money is, really. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the opposite, right. What is the risk here? I mean, what are some of the experts saying here? It's, it seems to me fairly risky, maybe more risk than you know you'd, you'd want to take um what's if you had 186.8 billion by the yeah, way currently he's yeah. the richest on the bloomberg <laughs> think, rich list uh, at a technical level and again i'm, I'm a reporter i'm not a, a space engineer but the thing the difference between the capsule that blue origin has is that there's no onboard control imagine a a, a meditation room with padding around the outside, six windows and six seats. That's it. If you compare that to the Dragon capsule that SpaceX um, uh, produces, the astronauts in the SpaceX capsule have some limited ability to interact with the vessel, run checks, run controls, do some manual takeover in worst case scenarios. The Blue Origin capsule is truly autonomous. You sit there, you belt in, and that's it. It's out of your control. I guess that's slightly disconcerting. And, and the frequency of tests and volume of tests is much less, far fewer than SpaceX has done. But they have had 15 consecutive test flights. They've, they've tested successfully the abort features. What happens in the event of an emergency, the way that it's designed is that not only does the capsule carrying the human separate from the booster, but it gets a, basically a boost to, to change its trajectory away from the booster. It, there's a hard separation, which means that they, you know, they wouldn't collide with each other or come into contact. And at that point, the, the parachutes would open. But yeah, it, of course, it's fraught with risk. Mm. You know, and, and I think that... Less so from Bezos, because we hear from him less. But Elon Musk, for example, is pretty transparent about what those risks are. And mm. Musk wants to go to Mars, too. So he's maybe not <laughs> far behind Jeff yeah. Bezos in billionaires in space. Ed, thanks so much for joining us. Ed Ludlow there. He's Bloomberg's, well, rocket reporter, but also sure. he covers cars for us out of California. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.